Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. You're listening to The Silver Stream, a journey through ideas in collaboration with invited guests, using visual artworks, writing and music as navigation points within a stream of consciousness. I'm Byzantia Harlow, a visual artist and the creator and host of The Silver Stream. In today's episode titled Hinterlands, I'm joined by guest collaborator, artist Rhiannon Rebecca Salisbury. You can find today's track list, reading references, and more on my Instagram at Byzantia Harlow. So in today's episode, we'll explore the spaces behind, the images just beyond, the psychological backwaters, these areas where things break apart and ooze out, asking, where do we put things and why do we do things? Are our biggest fears and greatest desires inextricably entwined? And what unprocessed elements do we use to build our realities? How can art function as a container for these shadow issues to be processed, both for the artist and for the wider collective? Do we really know what we're searching for? And would we still be looking and making if we did? This episode will explore the idea of looking and the different modes of looking, a zooming in to microscopic details obsessively, a sort of maddening investigation into minutiae. We'll think about how vision and time coexist, about how artworks can relate an experience I like to equate to jet lag for the viewer. The desynchronized moment where the viewer is transfixed and transported to other times and spaces in front of a work of art. Art allows for a looking forwards and backwards while still being present. And today this relates to a sense of nostalgia which we'll explore. Much like Janus, the Roman two-headed god who looked forward and back simultaneously, we'll explore feeling the loss of something before it has even begun. A loss of innocence pervades through the episode as we explore the gaze in relation to femininity and consumerism. For those unfamiliar with Rhiannon's art practice, she completed her MAFA at Chelsea College of Art in 2016, receiving the John Hoyland Scholarship, and she graduated from the Terps Painting Programme, winning the Derbyshire Prize for Emerging Art. Rhiannon held her debut solo show, Accessorise with a Tiger, at Arusha Gallery in Edinburgh, she won the Delphian Gallery Open Call competition last year, culminating in her solo exhibition, Habitual Submission. In Video Green, an amazing book by writer and filmmaker Chris Krauss, the author asks, why this and not that? Stating this is probably the only artistic question that's worth asking. And so as my first ever painter on the Silver Stream, I'd like to begin today asking you the same thing, Rhiannon, why painting? I think painting is like alchemy in the sense that you approach a surface with these paints and you move them around the canvas and there's always a moment of surprise. So you'll go in with an idea, but you never really know what you're going to come out the other end with. And for me, that's very Moorish. Like I feel compelled to paint almost every day of my life, Um, maybe because I want that experience. And when you think about human history, you realise that the urge to create painting is primordial. Uh, 
you know, there's always been mark making. It's a really rich dialogue that's built up throughout our whole existence and one that I'm sure will continue into the future. I think it's problem solving and there's always potential to improve and enhance what you've done before. Um, Also, I believe that it can really impact the human psyche. And I speak from experience about how paintings affected me over time. And it's something that stays with you over time and unravels over time as well. So there's an immediacy in the making that's very addictive, but then a slowness about how the messages reveal themselves to you over longer periods of time. And the whole thing is incredibly compelling and absorbing uh, for me. I think there's something about the fluidity of painting that sort of allows things to just emerge from murky depths and then also to recede. Um, So it's never quite one or the other. It's very like singular to painting, I think. Um, And I think it works very well with your subject matter. So obviously painting is all about the image, what is revealed or concealed. And it also has got such a history in terms of being considered this like sort of beautiful luxury consumerist object, which resonates with how the female body may have been viewed historically and also may still be viewed by some today, especially within the realms of advertising. Um, and in a recent interview in Assemblage magazine you you did, you state how the psychology of advertising hijacks our brains um, and you explore this idea of art being able to affect us in a similar way. And then you go on to quote the Society of the Spectacle, which actually surprised me as I wouldn't have immediately thought of that text in relation to your work but it's one of my favourite bits of writing ever, actually. Um, Maybe you could say something now in relation to this text and your work. So with Guy Debord, even though his writing predates social media, I believe the way he discusses the image as spectacle and its importance is even more topical today than when he was writing his text. I'm really interested in how the proliferation of mass media affects our relationships with ourselves and others. Uh, My favourite quote from the Society of the Spectacle is this. The images detached from every aspect of life merge into a common stream in which the unity of that life can no longer be recovered. Fragmented views of reality regroup themselves into a new unity as a separate pseudo world that can only be looked at. The specialisation of images of the world evolves into a world of autonomised images where even the deceivers are deceived. The spectacle is a concrete inversion of life, an autonomous movement of the non-living. I mean, for me, that's just like what Instagram has become. I know, it's true. Like, do we live in a reality or merely document it? And like, yeah, it's just a question to ask in the age of social media. Um, although at the moment virtual worlds have come into their own, I mean, we are <laughs> Skyping right now to do this episode and it is, I, I always, I, I spoke about it in the past in the Silver Stream as like social media is this thing that is disconnecting people, but it has sort of like, you know, at the moment it is the thing that is keeping everyone connected. So it's, a, it's an interesting one. Um, but just on that, I think there's like a difference when you are interacting in a video, maybe than when you're just looking at some image that's been posted. True. Yeah. Um, true. Yeah. True. Um, I'm going to throw in another favourite and well-used quote of mine now. In Hegel's Phenomenology of Mind, he states, in the case where the self is merely represented and ideally presented, there is not actual. Where it is by proxy, it is not. Which makes me wonder, if we are living for the image, what is left of us in reality? An even scarier question in relation to what's going on at the moment, where we are all living and socialising more and more through computer windows, as well as the occasional real window pane or doorway. Um, Reality's surface seems to be especially easy to scratch beneath these days. And that reminds me of a Frances Stark quote from her essay, Scared to Death, which is another favourite of mine. I quote now, 
For faux painting to sustain its effect, a viewer must not partake in any isolated or protracted viewing. It is meant for glancing, not looking. I like to believe someone could inevitably break out of the glance mode and start to pay attention, at which point all hell could very well break loose. There's something in that quote about the gaze and disruption, about modes of viewing. A look is never a look. I mean, just think about Dante and Beatrice. Dante claims to have met the real Beatrice who became his muse only twice on two occasions that were separated by nine years. And the first meeting was literally like a fleeting glance. It was barely even a look that they shared. But he said that he was so affected by that encounter that he carried this love for her throughout his life and she became like a massive inspiration to his writing. So Beatrice was the woman who's been commonly identified as the principal inspiration for one of his guides in the Divine Comedy, in the last book Paradiso, and in the last four Canti of Purgatorio. So, you know, this is sort of like showing us that looking is far from passive. It's a very active process and it implicates the viewer. You know, Dante was totally implicated in this whole thing just after glancing someone. So I really believe that viewing and viewing artworks in particular is always dominant, active and participatory. Um, and thinking about this idea of active looking reminds me of the Yellow Wallpaper novel by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, which you had at your Delphin Gallery solo show habitual submission. Um, and you had several copies of that text for people to take away with them. I think the book was either in place of the more traditional press release or maybe in addition to it. What was it? You had like a table with like lots of the book. Yeah, there was a dressing table with a mirror and then like a hundred copies of the text. It's quite a short text um, and it just it kind of underpinned the ideas uh, for the exhibition. So I wanted people to be able to kind of read it if they chose to. Um, so the yellow wallpaper charts the mental breakdown of a woman brought about through repressive constraints of uh, patriarchal society. We're informed about her deteriorating state of mind in a highly visual and psychedelic um, analogy of her descriptions of the wallpaper in the room she inhabits. Um, in that show, a lot of my paintings, the women were um, in front of these backgrounds and they went in and out of the background. So the marks in the background were linking to the marks in the women themselves. Um, and they were from advertising Im imagery, which I was using as uh, source material. Um, so like with the magazines, I feel like, although it's a different model on each page, there's like a continuity continuity about them all which is just like monotonous and the same on every page as well and that's one of the underpinning like themes of my work hmm. that time nice um yeah i i reread some of the yellow wallpaper ahead of the episode and it's quite strange rereading it in the context of lockdown because it's changed its resonance which is kind of interesting as well because the book's central theme is sort of like this idea of looking at something the same thing with different eyes but it is also just this idea of the monotony of something of images like i think we spend a lot of time at the moment staring at our walls um and i occasionally feel like you get this glimpse of like a glitch in the simulation something about an obsessive looking and over analysis and going everywhere and nowhere at once and this like endless looping which I think the yellow wallpaper seems to explore for me anyway like I woke up this morning for example and literally like I wanted to scream at the side of my bedroom again like every morning the same although obviously I have it pretty good at the moment compared to many but there's just this thing of being like trapped by domesticity and like noticing every little imperfection or slight change that I'm seeing in my house I'm like oh look at that crack look at that spider's web all like I don't know there's just something about that um it's kind of maddening and it reminds me of the yellow wallpaper as well as your work uh let's read a little bit out together now from that text I got positively angry with the impertinence of it and the everlastingness. Up and down and sideways they crawl, and those absurd, unblinking eyes are everywhere. There is one place where two breaths didn't match, and the eyes go all up and down the line, one a little higher than the other. This wallpaper has a kind of sub-pattern in a different shade, a particularly irritating one, for you can only see it in certain lights, and not clearly then. 
But in places where it isn't faded and where the sun is just so, I can see a strange, provoking, formless sort of figure that seems to skulk about behind that silly and conspicuous front design. I lie here on this great immovable bed. It is nailed down, I believe, and follow that pattern about by the hour. It's as good as gymnastics, I assure you. I start, we'll say, at the bottom, down in the corner over there, where it hasn't been touched, and I determine for the thousandth time that I will follow that pointless pattern to some sort of conclusion. There are things in that paper that nobody knows but me, or ever will. Behind that outside pattern, the dim shapes get clearer every day. It's always the same shape, only very numerous, and it's like a woman stooping down and creeping about behind that pattern. I don't like it a bit. The faint figure behind seems to shake the pattern, just as if she wanted to get out. I lay there for hours trying to decide whether that front pattern and the back pattern really did move together or separately. On a pattern like this, by daylight, there's a lack of sequence, a defiance of law, that is a constant irritant to a normal mind. The colour is hideous enough, and unreliable enough, and infuriating enough, but the pattern is torturing. You think you have mastered it, but just as you get well underway in following, it turns a back somersault and there you are. It slaps you in the face, knocks you down and tramples upon you. It's like a bad dream. At night, in any kind of light, in twilight, candlelight, lamplight, and worst of all by moonlight, it becomes bars. The outside pattern, I mean, and the woman behind it, is as plain as can be. I didn't realise for a long time what the thing was that showed behind that dim sub-pattern, but now I am quite sure it's a woman. I really have discovered something at last. Through watching so much at night when it changes so, I've finally found out. The front pattern does move, and no wonder, the woman behind shakes it. Sometimes I think there are a great many women behind, and sometimes only one, and she crawls around fast, and her crawling shakes it all over. Then, in the very bright spots, she keeps still, and in the very shady spots, she just takes hold of the bars and shakes them hard. And she is, all the time, trying to climb through. But nobody could climb through that pattern. It strangles so. I think that's why it has so many heads. They get through and then the pattern strangles them off and turns them upside down and makes their eyes white. If those heads were covered or taken off, it would not be half so bad. Yeah, it's such an amazing piece of writing. I recommend that people read the whole thing. Um, something about it reminds me of this quote as well from Video Green by Chris Krause, which goes, scratch the surface and there's just more surface. I'm trying to understand the tendency in contemporary art to isolate and depict the surface. I think, you know, as artists, we can be obsessed by the surface. I know I'm particularly interested in the idea of the veneer, this sort of like thin slice of reality that stands in and is sort of less surface than the actual surface, yet more surface somehow. Um, and the veneer contains the sort of like essentials of the surface it replicates. So it's like surface to the max times the square root, uh, something like that. And I think it is something to do with this idea of the archetypal. Um, but anyway, as artists, we can make so much of a thin layer of reality. We have the ability to create something from virtually nothing, like we have a speck of dust under a microscope or a pea under a hundred mattresses that just won't let us rest at night. And perhaps there's a hope that there's more than meets the eye to the surface of reality, or maybe, you know, we're all just obsessive neurotics. Um, I often wonder what we're avoiding looking at when we zoom in on whatever it is we do direct our attention to instead. Um, you know, what unknown impulses compel us to dissect um, and look beyond rather than live our realities. I don't know, this is just how I feel when I'm making work sometimes. Um, but there's something in the yellow wallpaper that makes me think of such unseen forces, lifting the veil, or in this instance, the wallpaper, to an unseen and unknown world beneath its surface, and sort of seeing the seemingly mundane in a new light. And I know we've spoken before about the idea of intuition, the meaning we might retrospectively attribute to events after the fact, this form of seeing in a new light, 
seeing through the eyes of mystery and magic, of listening to that inner knowing that can be heard from deep within, behind the layers, beneath the surface of reality. Um, I know you paint in an intuitive manner, maybe like just talk about that for a second. Yeah. So when I um, set out to begin a new painting, I've learned to try to select an image as intuitively as I can. Um, I've got a large saved photo library, um, both like on my computer and my Instagram account. And I'll just like scroll through in the morning when I wake up. So like often while I'm still in bed and I just try and pick out the image that I respond to emotionally in the moment of looking rather than when I try to intellectualize as having potential. Um, so like my preference for certain images changes each time I look. So I just go with the one that I have a connection to uh, in that moment. Um, and then from that, I'll make a drawing from the photo and choose a kind of color palette that I'll mix. And then I'll put that photo away and I'll just be working from like my um, kind of memory of the image and my imagination like in, in the new kind of present. Yeah, that's super nice, this idea of like the imagination filling in gaps almost. And like, I'm also kind of obsessed with gaps in my work. For me, it's the gap between reality and recreation. You know, it even happens in this radio series because it's all to do with these kind of conversations that I would have naturally with peers, but then like heightening them. So it's just this idea of the genuine and then the recreation or like take like heightening something, heightening experience for people somehow. But um, yeah something to do with this gap between these two states is really interesting for me as well. Um, often for me, it's done in a performative manner, obviously like very different to how you work, but I love assembling sort of fissures to create veneers of truth, where the effigy of something can actually become more meaningful than the original. Um, and I'm always searching for something that's slightly out of reach. Um, endlessly trying to recreate moments that have gone, knowing they're fading before they're even lived. And I wonder what that is really about for me. And I wonder if whether, um, if an artist really understood why they did what they do, as well as just what they do, because we're all very good at knowing what we do. We have to write endless kind of like uh, statements about that. But if we knew why, I wonder whether we would bother to really make the work. Making is a way of processing through emotions. Um, so the work becomes like a psychological container. I mean, we know roughly what we're reaching for, but if we had it all worked out, why, you know, what would be the point? Uh, when something is totally resolved, it becomes a bit boring to make more of the same, I find. Uh, and it reminds me of a conversation we once had about you wanting to break out of making the same sort of work which you felt was expected of you. In What is an Apparatus and Other Essays by Giorgio Agamben, he says something super beautiful about the unknown. I quote, What we perceive of the darkness of the heavens is light that through travelling towards us cannot reach us. To perceive in the darkness of the present this light that strives to reach us but cannot, this is what it means to be contemporary. In other words, it is like being on time for an appointment one cannot but miss, of an already that is also not yet. It allows us to recognise in the obscurity of the present the light that, without ever being able to reach us, is perpetually voyaging towards us. I feel this links to the idea of reaching that artists do, striving to understand what, if was known, we may not try to attain. This processing we do through making. I think in this processing, artworks can become not only containers for our stuff, but then also mirrors and containers for the collective and wider audiences, allowing for societal shifts. That essay contains another line I love. The present is nothing other than this unlived element in everything that is lived. An idea which links to Michael Foucault's idea that historical investigations of the past are only the shadows cast by interrogation of the present. Quoting you again from your interview in Assemblage magazine, you state, I always found that painting is a way to help with thought processing. When I don't paint, my head becomes incredibly chaotic and muddy. Yes, um, art's always been like a partial therapy for me. I think that's why I paint so much. 
uh, when I'm working mechanically and the emotion's not there, it just feels shit and I don't feel like I'm really making paintings. Um, I also struggle with authority. So I've always had like a huge problem being told what to do by other people. Um, I think I've found this when a client or a gallery has asked me for something specific. It just feels like I'm in a cage and my freedom's suddenly been curtailed. Um, I totally understand what you mean about making work to find something out. Even though I work from photography a lot of the time, I never know how the painting's going to look at the outset. Um, it's always like a moment of realisation that it's suddenly saying something to me I hadn't expected and that's when I'll stop. Yeah, I think it's like, for me, when I always feel like a work is finished, when it's like, it's no longer my own, when it has like agency of its own, and it's starting to become something other, um, and it exists for itself, and it takes on qualities I hadn't sort of like anticipated or intended a character of its own. Um, and when it can almost be in dialogue back with me rather than just sort of taking on my thoughts when it can speak for itself rather than being something I speak through I guess um but there is this feeling of that um and going back to this idea of the creative process being a therapeutic one not just for the maker but for the audience there's a nice quote from the reenchantment of art by Susie Gablick which is like an amazing book I recommend people read um I'll read out a quote now Psychoanalyst Marie-Louise von Franz says, A civilization which has no creative people is doomed. The person who is really in touch with the future is the creative personality. Heinz Kahut, another psychoanalyst, has called this the anticipatory function of art. Those artists who are in touch with the necessary psychological tasks of a culture prepare the way for the culturally supported solution to a conflict to emerge for the healing of a psychological defect. Maybe a good moment for a track now. Do you want to introduce it, Rhiannon? Yes, so we're gonna to listen to Pussy Riot, who are a Russian feminist protest punk rock group based in Moscow. Um, they were founded in 2011, and it's always had a variable membership of between 11 uh, women, ranging from the ages of 20 to 33. Um, so the group staged unauthorised provocative guerrilla performances in public places, performances that were filmed as music videos and posted on the internet. Uh, the collective's lyrical themes included feminism, LGBT rights and opposition to Russian President Vladimir Putin, whom the group considered to be a dictator. You're listening to The Silver Stream on Soho Radio. I'm creator and host Byzantia Harlow, and for today's episode, Hinterlands, I'm joined by guest collaborator, artist Rhiannon Salisbury. So Rhiannon, in the beginning of today's episode, you mentioned your paint handling and synthetic colour palette striking a balance that simultaneously allures and repels the viewer. I think this is interesting as psychologically, these dipole opposites are always linked. If we think of notions of phobic and fetishistic objects being those objects that repel and allure us the most, they are actually always entwined psychoanalytically. Um, I'm also very interested in the notions of the abject, which is, you know, those things that repel us the most, um, things that we are phobic of. And to have such a strong reaction to something gives it so much charge and so much power that it is a sort of fascination. Um, and so there is a term, cathexis, which is a psychological term that can be said to be a, a rejection of difficult emotion where emotion is taken out of the actual subject and then placed into an external space as a sort of means of making it safer. So this is particularly often seen in phobias. Basically, people who are phobic of external dirt may have a fear of kind of internal dirt, i.e. like psychological dirt. And then by a process of cathexis, they kind of externalize this fear into a fear of germs, for example. So abject bodily matter disgusts us when it crosses the boundaries of our body and it exists before us as an expression of our mortality. 
And its act of crossing the bodily boundary between inside and out, entry and exit, is obviously loaded with fears of death. From a Jungian perspective, the rejection of the ego's unwanted aspects of itself can be seen as sort of an expression of the archetypal shadow, everything that is alien to us, everything that is other, all the aspects of us that we do not want to kind of own and acknowledge. Um, and so this is a boundary, but it moves with growth and development. And there is a really great quote by Adam Phillips in On Kissing, Tickling and Being Bored, which sort of sums all this up. So in his psychoanalytic essays on the unexamined life, he asks, what is unbearable about oneself and where is one going to put it? If reading an artwork from a psychoanalytical perspective, it could be said that an enduring aspect of artists is their ability of acknowledging these aspects of shadow in their work, not only personally, but collectively, so reflecting the current world state within their practice. In addition, the art object produced is often a container that holds something that affects not just the artist, but also others. The artwork is this place where we can put what is unbearable about ourself or about our culture, society, fill in the blank. In this way, the art world seems to be a place where psychological dirt, ambiguity and darkness can be celebrated and where pleasure can be taken in inarticulate and unstructured forms. There's a quote from Purity and Danger, an analysis of concepts of pollution and taboo by Mary Douglas, where she states, shoes are not dirty in themselves, but it is dirty to place them on the dining table. Food is not dirty in itself, but it's dirty to leave cooking utensils in the bedroom. I feel like all these quotes are ultra loaded now, given what we're dealing with currently in the world, a mass phobia of germs and dirt. I mean, I've been leaving my shoes firmly at the front door, although in the beginning of lockdown, I drunkenly asked the neighbour to roll me a cigarette. So there's clearly some contradictory behaviour going on in me, you know, and I'm sure I washed my hands like a hundred times after I smoked the cigarette that he rolled and like licked the paper of, do you know what I mean? Like a little bit mad um but back to the topic there is this other aspect to dirt which i've spoken about before on the silver stream and that's this idea of this kind of psychological shadow being a phonic and generative um place so it's like fertile land where ideas can grow creativity from pain flowers from the dung heap etc this is a well-trodden patch of land i repeatedly trampled on in this radio show but it is worth noting again and finally, there is another quote that, again, relates um, from purity and danger to this idea of the kind of chaotic and unboundaried being creative. I quote, It has been argued that we enjoy works of art because they enable us to go behind the explicit structures of our normal experience. Aesthetic pleasure arises from the perceiving of inarticulate forms. When I read Purity and Danger during my MA, the book really blew my mind all the descriptions around boundaries and how these are located in cultural folklore, I guess, really hit a nerve with me. Um, I also especially dwell on the way like shoes are considered clean when outdoors, but dirty when inside a house. Um, I'm obsessed with the in-between. I'm trying to uncover a surface beneath the surface and I'm playing with borders and boundaries consistently throughout my practice. Um, kind of like when you have a dream but you didn't realize it was a dream. Like a dream within a dream, you mean? No, so um, I often dream things and then I'm unaware that they were dreams. I just think that they were things that happened in my life. And it takes me quite a long time to kind of decodify what was real and what wasn't real. Maybe dreams are as real. I mean, that's just a different sort of like way of valuing reality or this, I don't know, yeah. I love dreams, personally. <laughs> I find them very, like, I find that dreams can be more real than reality. But, you know, I have some pretty out there beliefs. Um, like I've held things against people um, because I thought things have happened, but actually I just dreamt that they had. <laughs> but maybe that is your intuition and your subconscious giving you a message about something. You know what I mean? Anyway, um, for me, Max Ernst's Attirement of the Bride painting is really doing this thing that you mentioned earlier about seduction and repulsion. Um, it's 
kind of disquieting, uncomfortable opulence and luxurious extravagance held within figurative excess and an abundant use of colour. It creates terror and delight, a painting within a painting to portray his lover, Leonora Carrington, who was a surrealist painter. Ernst, who is known to have had catastrophic marriages, um, kind of presents the notion of the bride as alluring still. A sort of quasi-fetishistic object wearing the grotesque head of a bird, the feathers forming a fetishistic second skin, suffocating in its abundance of unwarranted materiality. A peeping, fixated, vagina-like eye within a sort of pubic cloak um, and the only glimpse we get of her actual face is through this weird kind of cloak but above this we have this dead stare of a knowing owl so it's a sort of erotic fantasy of smooth hairless skin with submissive servants unable to look upon their queen's beauty or shadowy figures made impotent suggested with broken spears by their queen's sexual power um, it does remind me of your paintings where you have um, figures with sort of like animals and stuff. Maybe you can speak about that in a second. But yeah, again, all the images of the artworks discussed today can be found on my Instagram at Byzantia Harlow. But yeah, something of that excess just sort of reminds me of your paintings, Rhiannon. Yeah, I like that painting as well. I think when a woman is portrayed sexually in a painting, but there isn't a man in the painting... Um, there's always like a sense of danger beneath the surface. Um, like I say, like I think that in the depiction of a fragile or sexy um, or consumable woman, there's like a counter male presence that's not seen, but you're still aware of it as a viewer. Um, I think like with the animals as well, like when you put a woman and an animal together in an image, like they do in advertising very often, those two symbols um, add to the meaning of one another so they like reinforce each other's value and change the kind of value of one another and um yeah it's just something i find really interesting to explore like the kind of like hidden or codified like semiotics of meaning in advertising um so thinking around these ideas i thought a nice choice for our second song of the day could be la noir by barbara Barbara was born in 1930 and she's super famous in France, but not so much elsewhere. But basically she was um, Jewish and she went into hiding during the German occupation um, in World War II. And she was the first female singer to perform her own material, which often speaks of women's intimate concerns, love, death, solitude. And um, they're like often heartbreakingly autobiographical including dealing with her father's sexual abuse. And the song we're about here, L'Age Noir, exposes sort of dark moments. A black eagle covering her at night. Uh, but the songs are melancholic and like super beautiful. I don't know, I just find the sort of strength in turning the shadow into beauty and light that can touch others quite amazing. And I think it's very fitting to play after discussing Max Ernst's painting just with the kind of imagery involved. So, yeah, let's hear that now. Um, so I want to think a bit about the idea of time now. Being in time, out of time, and in between time. I always think your paintings have something sort of nostalgic about them. I know we've spoken in the past uh, together in the studio about a sort of teenage desire to search for the spiritual and festival settings through drug use and stuff in your earlier work which is something that kind of resonates with my work as well. Um, and there's this idea of coming of age somehow in your paintings, or maybe this is just me viewing them as a woman of a similar age to you, I don't know, but discovering ourselves through images of advertising, either accepting or rejecting these ideals is still sort of engaging with them um, to some degree, is something that I feel as a woman. Um, it's like the phobic fetish thing again, any strong reaction either way is still a sort of reaction and investment of emotion in something, you know. Um, but this finding of self through something external is all about fetishization, objects that stand in for the self or other. 
And there is another great quote from Video Green by Chris Krauss, which I think elaborates on this idea of finding the self through the external. She states, the imagination requires a certain literacy. History is like the ocean, an accumulation of references, dreams and stories unleashed by contact with the object. In this sense, the object simply functions as a trigger to the real collection, which is totally internal. In What is an Apparatus and Other Essays by Giorgio Agamben, he describes nostalgia as the irrecoverable and goes on to state that the act of remembering rather than recovering the loss of consciousness serves only to activate the longing to return. The act of memory itself and the quality of remembrance of the past brings no satisfaction or joy. It serves only as a springboard to the state of feeling desired, a time when one was content, happy, fulfilled, satiated. The emphasis on the self and on the desired image of oneself, the people and places in the memory are stilted, frozen in history and in relationship to the self, which has been, which has been, which has been lost. So this reminds me of your work, this idea of lost youth, but a knowing loss, an awareness that moments are slipping away whilst they're doing so. Something about innocence and corruption in relation to the beauty industry and something more. A sort of critique or highlighting of the knowingness and complicity in being a woman consuming the beauty industry, perhaps. Um, it's like you aren't taking a side, but you're kind of knowingly playing and exposing the complexities of it all. Something of being trapped by femininity going on, self-imprisonment somehow. Yeah, I think that's really nice uh, piece of writing and yeah, an interesting link to my work. Um, I was thinking that maybe the artwork's a way for me to analyse issues um, from the past, from a slightly removed um, position. So there's often like this sense of me looking back rather than looking forwards in the work and recalling experience. Um, so hindsight is like an element which helps to produce the paintings uh, with a bit of objectivity. So with this in mind, the next audio we will hear is Sylvia Plath reading her own poem, Daddy, which remains one of the most controversial modern poems ever written. In this poem, Plath is coming to terms with the loss of her father. It's a dark, surreal and at times painful allegory that uses metaphor and other devices to carry the idea of a female victim finally freeing herself from her father. In Plath's own words, here is a poem spoken by a girl with an electric complex. Daddy, you do not do, you do not do any more black shoe in which I have lived like a foot for 30 years, poor and white, barely daring to breathe or her chew. Daddy, I have had to kill you. You died before I had time, marble heavy, a bag full of God, ghastly statue with one gray toe big as a Frisco seal and a head in the freakish Atlantic where it pours bean green over blue in the waters off beautiful Nosset. I used to pray to recover you, ach du, in the German tongue in the Polish town, scraped flat by the roller of wars, wars, wars. But the name of the town is common. My Polak friend says there are a dozen or two. So I never could tell where you put your foot, your root. I never could talk to you. The tongue stuck in my jaw. It's stuck in a barbed wire snare. Eek, 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 eek. I could hardly speak. I thought every German was you. And the language obscene, an engine, an engine, chuffing me off like a Jew. A Jew to Dachau, Auschwitz, Belsen. I began to talk like a Jew. I think I may well be a Jew. The snows of the Tyrol, the clear beer of Vienna, are not very pure or true. With my gypsy ancestress and my weird luck and my tarok pack and my tarok pack, I may be a bit of a Jew. I have always been scared of you, with your Luftwaffe, your gobbledygook and your neat moustache, and your Aryan eye, bright blue. Panzerman, Panzerman, 
Oh, you. Not God, but a swastika. So black no sky could squeak through. Every woman adores a fascist. The boot in the face. The brute, brute heart of a brute like you. You stand at the blackboard, Daddy. In the picture I have of you, a cleft in your chin instead of your foot. But no less a devil for that, no not any less the black man who bit my pretty red heart in two. I was ten when they buried you. At twenty I tried to die and get back, back, back to you. I thought even the bones would do. But they pulled me out of the sack and they stuck me together with glue. And then I knew what to do. I made a model of you, a man in black with a Mein Kampf look and a love of the rack and the screw, and I said, I do, I do. So, Daddy, I'm finally through. The black telephone's off at the root. The voices just can't worm through. If I've killed one man, I've killed two. The vampire who said he was you and drank my blood for a year. Seven years, if you want to know. Daddy, you can lie back now. There's a stake in your fat black heart, and the villagers never liked you. They are dancing and stamping on you. They always knew it was you. Daddy, daddy, you bastard, I'm through. So picking back up on my earlier comment around a feeling of complicity within enacting femininity, Judith Butler is well known for her writing, which expresses the belief that all gender is a form of drag. The performance of sexuality and gender is explored in her book, Gender Trouble, Feminism and the Subversion of Identity, which was published in 1990. In this, Butler views gender as a kind of improvisational theatre where different identities can be explored. For Butler, transgressive performances such as drag destabilise boundaries and society-constructed gender categories. This is an idea that's reflected in the times. In the 1990s, blurring of sexual boundaries was sort of something that had become characteristic in everyday life. This can be seen in advertising of the time where, you know, androgyny was very like in um, and it was very present. And there was a preoccupation, which I think it sort of began in the 80s and 90s, basically. And it coincided with artists focus on transformation and parody of the notions of absolute gender as well. So we had like artists like Sarah Lucas within her self-portraits or Sophie Rickert playing with stereotyped businesswomen uh, urinating against walls standing up in a typically kind of male in inverted commas fashion. Um, so around this time when I was a teenager I remember buying a book of Cindy Sherman's untitled film stills and not really understanding why it was considered art at the time. Um, in this series of photographs, Sherman imitates multiple female personas in a series of highly stylized self-portraits. Even though I was really confused by this as a teenager, it was a book and a body of work that has come to make increasing sense to me the older I've gotten. And I think it's a really brilliant example to highlight the performativity of gender that Judith Butler has explained so well through her writing. Uh, the writer Mira Shaw discusses Sherman's work in her novel Wet on painting, feminism and art culture, which I'm going to quote from now. Formally mimicking cultural productions dominated by male specularity, movies and commercial photography, Sherman poses and makes herself up. There is no one eye in her work. She is a blonde lying on a bed dressed in a black bra and panties, mouth half open, eyes unfocused, body akimbo, in a pose hinting at post-orgasmic stupor, or more likely a police photographer's view of a crime victim. She is a crouching young girl in a red calico dress, looking up innocently and fearfully. She is a sweating, open-mouthed, vacant-eyed prone woman in a wet t-shirt. She is a witch, a pig, a pimply ass a corpse half visible under the dirt and debris. A complete survey would indicate that a substantial number of the women enacted by Sherman are either squatting, crouching, or prone, crazed, or dead. The possible interpretations of this category of negative representations, representations of negativity, and nothing to be seen, 
unfold in a peculiar sequence that reflects the changes in her work. The ironic intention of these textbook representations of the other, Kant, Witch, Shrew, Bimbo, Victim, presumably ensures that they will be seen as critiques of this vision of woman, in much the same way that critics have explained away images of women in the work of her male contemporaries, such as David Sal. One has to see a Sherman photograph on a person's wall to understand the nature of its appeal. A wet t-shirt clinging suggestively to breasts is the same thing whether you call it drapery, mulier, or miming of popular culture, or tits and ass. These negative representations are disturbingly close to the way men have traditionally expressed or fantasised women. Sherman's camera is male. Her images are successful partly because they do not threaten phallocracy, but reiterate and confirm it. Yet another interpretation of Sherman's negative representations allows the female artist's sense of her own monstrosity, the monstrosity of her project of being an artist, to seep through the surface. The anxiety of authorship proposed in Gilbert and Gubar's The Mad Woman in the Attic results from the conflation of two phenomena faced by women artists. The dominant patriarchal ideology presents artistic creativity as a fundamentally male quality, and the dominant images of femininity are male fantasies, the angel in the house and the whore. Women artists seek to adopt, adapt male forms in order to be read, in order not to be thought to babble incoherently in no man's language. But their sense of monstrosity in rejecting these fantasy images and of the monstrousness of their anger against these images lurks more or less veiled within their work. Like Mr Rochester's first wife, hidden but uncontainably violent. The monstrosity and self-hatred of female authorship, increasingly evident in Sherman's impersonations, run rampant over the irony and create paradoxically a powerful feminist body of work. So personally, I deliberately work with found imagery from aspirational fashion and lifestyle magazines, focusing on the modeling campaigns of the most luxurious brands. And I tweet the compositions uh, to distort my dystopian perception of this capitalist dream. I hope that the reinterpretation of the adverts through painting opens up a dialogue where we can relook at the structure of ideas and references used in each highly constructed and saturated image. Well, I don't know. There was no good place for it, and I also I don't know if I I just couldn't do it. Really. <laughs> I'm a Barbie girl. I'll, I'll keep this in. <laughs> <laughs> I might keep that in. You've been listening to the Silver Stream on Soho Radio. I'm creator and host Byzantia Harlow, and for today's episode, Hinterlands. I was joined by guest collaborator, artist Rhiannon Salisbury. Thanks once again, Rhiannon, and to the listeners for tuning in. See you next time. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>